Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, this morning we're going to be taking a little bit of break from James um, because it, Easter's here, right? This is Palm Sunday and, and uh, this Friday is Good Friday and next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so we're going to be spending a little bit of time in Romans uh, 4 and 5 specifically for this. Um, there are notes still in your James book for this. Okay, we plan this ahead. And so um, there are, the, the text is in there and, and there are places for notes. And uh, again, encourage you to get into the text before the sermon. Uh, do a little bit of observational study, uh, inductive Bible study on your own, and then, and then come and take some notes and then, and then push it out into community afterwards, right? Have some conversations with folks about what you're learning about God's Word because God works in all of those different ways to help grow us. Uh, in our faith and in our experience of, of grace. All right, so this is Palm Sunday. I want to remind you that uh, this Friday is Good Friday, and we do have a Good Friday service. It'll be this Friday at 7 o'clock. Um, we tend to think of it as a service of darkness leading to a service of light on Easter. It is our way of, of celebrating what makes um, Friday good, right? Uh, the betrayal of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus is, is a, a dark um, and humbling day, but it is good because it is in that darkness that uh, light is born. It is from that place of judgment that, that we find our, um, our, our forgiveness uh, and our, our, our new beginning, right? It is through death that we discover resurrection, and we only do that because Jesus was our forerunner, right? And so join us as we just prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Christ uh, by mourning his death, by entering into the brokenness that, that required him to die. to die. And then, of course, next Easter, uh, next Sunday is Easter, and I encourage you to come back and, and join us for the celebration, right, as we, as we celebrate the, the resurrection of, uh, of our Savior. Um, I also want to let you know that today we do have our baptismal set up. This is something that we do um, throughout the year at different points. Uh, we have a handful of baptisms scheduled after the 1045 service. No one signed up for after this service. And so that's going to depend on somebody in here. Just letting you know. Okay? Uh, there will be an opportunity. Uh, we, do, we do encourage people that are followers of Christ that haven't been baptized uh, to be baptized. And, uh, and when we look at the New Testament, we see a pattern of, of uh, it's like the Ethiopian eunuch. What will keep me from being baptized right now? Right? What, what's holding me back? So if you're a follower of Christ who hasn't been baptized, um, you have the opportunity. We'll talk more about it uh, at the end of the service. All right, we're going over to Romans chapter 4 this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you, and we're heading over to Romans chapter 4 in our Bibles. We're going over to page 941. This is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, if you're not familiar with the story, is the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people from the city come out, uh, and, and they are waving palm branches and laying them on the ground in front of, uh, in front of his, his donkey. Um, and, and this is a king's entrance, right? We think of a donkey as not a, a very auspicious steed, but, but it's a king's entrance. And, and when, you, when a king rode on a donkey into the city, it was a proclamation of peace. When he rode into the city on a horse, it was a, a declaration of war. And, and he was coming in as the bringer of peace. And, and the city came out and, and they sang and, and they declared uh, Psalm 118, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And, and, and 
I, you know, I, I just can't. Every single time we come around to this day, uh, I am overwhelmed with the irony of this day. Because the crowds come out and sing hallelujah. Right? You are sent in the name of the Lord. You are, you are here to deliver us. You are here to bring the kingdom. They proclaim their faith. And as they enter the city, men, the disciples are soaking it up. They are, they are joining the celebration. They are riding high. Um, Jesus is being recognized. There is momentum coming behind the movement. This is surely the Messiah, the one who is going to bring God's kingdom to the nation of Israel. But four days later, Jesus will be privately betrayed by his friends on Thursday night as he is betrayed by Judas and handed over and all of his closest friends run into the darkness protecting their own hides. Five days later, he's going to be scourged and publicly crucified as the same crowds who sang hallelujah now cry out for his blood. The people who proclaimed their faith in Jesus one day betrayed him the next. They left him and didn't just leave him, they turned on him. One day they called him the Savior. The next day they called him the Accursed. So here's the thing, and this is what I want to kind of dig into this morning. There is such a thing as fake faith. There is such a thing as fake faith. This, this thing that, that, that I am sure on Triumphal Sunday, on, on Palm Sunday, everybody who was in that crowd, man, they were singing Hosanna to the highest. They were raising their hands like good charismatics. They were waving like wheat in the wind with the enthusiasm and the joy of the moment. And I'm sure not one of them thought of themselves as a faker, as somebody who was a user of Christ and not a believer in Christ. Now, obviously, Jesus knew. Um, but here's the thing. There is such a thing as fake faith. And it's a deadly trap. It is a deadly trap. Because not only will it um, cause you to abandon the very things you say you believe, it will leave you completely and utterly exposed. And outside of the saving work of Christ. There are those who claim the blessing of faith, but they will never receive the blessing of faith because their faith was fake. So how do we know? How do we know? How do we know what real faith is? How do we, you know, if it feels so real, surely it is so real, right? How do we, how do we know? Romans chapter 4 is really going to help us dig into this question. Okay, so we're going to be reading Romans chapter 4. It's a lot about this guy named Abraham. We're going to explain this as we go, but I'm going to read this out loud. I want you to follow along. I'm going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, a little bit of quick context here. This is a, this is a really complicated passage. Uh, if you did your inductive Bible study this week, you would have noticed that. Um, it, 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 there are so many theological streams and so many Old Testament references, and, 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 and Paul assumes that we know a lot of things that many of us just don't know because we're not trained uh, in Old Testament theology and history. Uh, so a little bit of quick context. God made a promise at the very beginning of the Bible Right? In Genesis chapter 3, right when mankind rebelled against God, when Adam and Eve looked at God and, and basically committed cosmic treason and said to God, we don't want your presence, we don't want your authority, we only want your blessing, we will be like God. Not, not, we won't submit to you, we'll submit to ourselves, we won't follow you, we'll follow ourselves. We, we, will, we will pursue our own ends uh, to get um, your blessing without you, right? And, and right in the middle of that, right in the chaos of Genesis chapter 3, God made a profound promise that he would send a hero, right? In the middle of that, he said, I'm going to send a savior. Now, as, as history went on, um, the Jews started calling that hero the Messiah, right? In Greek, that's the Christ, the anointed one, the one who has chosen to be the hero of the story, the one who will undo what has been done, who will win back what has been lost, who will restore what has been broken, right? But in order to do this, God said in Genesis chapter 3, his heel will have to be bruised even though he will crush the head of your enemy. He's going to have to pay a price to win back what you've lost. He will crush your enemy. He, he will undo what has been done, but he's going to do it at great personal cost. That promise in Genesis chapter 3 is renewed through a series of covenants throughout the Old Testament, and we call these the covenants of promise, because each time that the covenant is renewed, each time this promise is renewed, God is basically saying, I will do this for you. I will send a hero. I will send the, the one who will undo what has been done. Now, the greatest of these covenants, the queen of the the covenants of promise was the one made with Abraham. Um, the only one that surpasses it is the new covenant. Uh, we've talked about that several times over the last uh, couple of months, but, but the Abrahamic covenant is referred to more in the New Testament than, than really any other uh, covenant in the Old Testament. It, it is the greatest of the covenants. Now, Abraham, the covenant with Abraham is pretty simple. He was 75 years old. He and Sarah had been married, and they were barren. They were childless. And in that culture, that was a sign of shame. Uh, and, and God showed up in Genesis chapter 12 and, and said to Abraham, um, I'm going to give you a son. And, and I'm not just going to give you a son. I'm going to make you uh, the father of nations. 
right? There's going to be a fruitfulness that flows from you that is, that is unsurpassed. So he made a promise to him when he was 75 years old. In Genesis 15, he reappeared and said, not only am I going to give you a son, that son is going to become a blessing to the entire world, right? Not only are you going to have a lot of, a lot of descendants, but that son is going to be the world changer, the hero of the story. And that son will deliver you into an inheritance, right? He promised, I'm going to give you a land, right? Very clearly defined as, as, as what we know as the nation of Israel. There's boundaries laid out in the promise in Genesis chapter 15. If you've ever heard of the promised land, you've ever heard of that phrase, that's why. Because God promised it to Israel. He said, this is the land promised to you and your descendants, right? And so he promised them not only a descendant, but, but um, a, an inheritance, And then Abraham waited 25 years, 25 years after the initial promise, 25 years as he aged and and watched his body um, move from from waning and fruitfulness to being past it, watching Sarah move through menopause, um, 25 years. And when Abraham was 100 years old, God fulfilled his promise and gave him Isaac. And Isaac became the, J- the father of Jacob, and, and Jacob was, was renamed Israel, and Israel became the father of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham had another son, too. We're going to talk a little bit about him, uh, a, a boy named Ishmael um, through Hagar, and, and, and he became the father of nations as well. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Abraham isn't just the father uh, of the Jewish nation. Abraham isn't just the father of the Arabic nations. The Bible presents him as the father of of faith. In fact, he is the go-to guy for the Apostle Paul. He loves to go into the Old Testament when he's talking about faith and say, if you want to know about faith, look at Abraham, because Abraham is the father of faith. If you want to know what it is and how it works, look at Abraham, because Abraham is our example. He didn't just receive the greatest covenants of promise. He, he models for us how to engage the covenant of promise. He, he models for us how to receive the blessing of this promise. He models faith. So Paul is arguing, man, you you obtain this blessing of salvation, of deliverance, of of the the restoration of what has been lost in Christ. You receive this through faith, just like Abraham did. So if you want to know about authentic faith, look at Abraham. So I'm going to look at Abraham in this passage, and we're going to draw out four points about authentic faith. We're going to be looking at four things that, that help us understand um, what is authentic or true faith compared to fake faith. First of all, true faith rests in God's promise. Right? True faith rests in God's promise. I'm going to read verses uh, 19 through 22. He, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why he was saved by faith. That is why he he was delivered as a result of his faith. So faith. Here's the thing, you guys. Faith um, has to have something to trust. And your faith is only as good as what you place it 
in, right? Frederick Nietzsche made the wry observation, a casual stroll through the lunatic asylum shows that faith doesn't prove anything, right? Your faith is only as good as what you place it in, right? As a, as a, as a young believer, I remember one time sharing my faith with, a, with an older guy. I was, I was uh, brand new in, in my faith. I was excited about what I believed in Jesus. I was really, really rough. I didn't even know how to do it. Um, I, I was just stumbling. And, and I remember this guy was like, hey, man, I can see you're really passionate about this, but, but you know what? We all have faith, and isn't that the important thing? Isn't that the important thing, that we all just have faith, right? That we have something to believe in. And, and, uh, and I remember being really unsettled by that. And I didn't have the, you know, I was a kid and didn't have the clarity or the, or, or the you know. But, but here's the thing, you guys. Um, every person who was on board the Titanic had faith in that ship and faith in that captain. And that faith was misplaced. And that faith betrayed them. In the end, it isn't your faith that saves you. It's what you place your faith in. Right? Faith is the vehicle. It, it is not the, the deliverer. Abraham's faith was in the promise of God. God showed up in Genesis chapter 12 with a radical promise. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you the father of nations. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless the world. God showed up with a promise, a simple word that was based purely in his ability to fulfill his intention. It was a promise. Abraham's faith was in that promise of God to bless him. It wasn't in his faith right? He didn't have faith in his ability to take hold of the promise. He had faith in the promise. Do you understand the distinction? He wasn't focusing on whether or not he was doing a good enough job taking hold of the promise. He was just simply filling his mind with the promise. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, showed up and gave him a faith. And so, so gave him a promise. And so his faith wasn't in his religious behavior. His faith wasn't in his obedience. His faith wasn't in his commitment to God. His faith was in the promise not his ability to take hold of it, receive it, or do anything with it. I've talked to a lot of young believers who have struggled with their faith, and often I will dig in and say, well, tell me about when you became a believer. And, and uh, if you're from a certain camp and a certain circle, it's very, very common that you'll eventually go back to a story, it was a, whether it was a campfire experience at a camp or, or, or a church camp in the summer where somebody you know, gave a rousing appeal and finally told you, man, if you want, if you want to follow Jesus, all you've got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. That's all you've got to do, right? Or the modern version, make Jesus your forever friend. Right? Just make Jesus your forever friend. And I'm like, okay. Now, how'd that work for you? Right? And I learned enough. I usually ask, how many times have you done that? It's usually a lot. Oh, you know, like four, five, six. I don't know. How come? Well, I don't think I did it good enough the first time. Not, not sure I did it with all my heart. Because, you know, I started stumbling and really struggling in my Christian faith. Oh, as a 12-year-old, you really had deep, conflicting struggle with your faith. Yeah, yeah, I went to school, and I was angry, and I just wasn't. So I asked Jesus into my heart again. Um, you guys, our faith 
isn't in our commitment to God. It's in God's commitment to his word. Our faith isn't in how we take hold of the promise, but in the promise itself. Abraham's trust wasn't made strong by looking at his own commitment to God. It was made strong by receiving God's promise to him. True faith rests in God's promise. And because he had God's promise, he also trusted God's power, right? True faith rests not just in God's promise, but in God's power. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, which was God's promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope. In a hopeless situation, he still had hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham had hope in a hopeless situation. Abraham's, Abraham's confidence wasn't based uh, in, in how things were going, in, 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 in whether or not he could see. Man, I can see. Man, I see the dominoes that have already fallen, and I see how the rest are going to fall. I totally trust God because I understand everything he's doing. Right? Because, because I really think that, that we're really close, and, 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 and I can see how this is. No, man. God made the promise and then sat back until it was humanly impossible. 25 years. It looked like the opportunity was going to expire. As Abraham's body aged, as, as Sarah passed through menopause, as, as he looks at this and it is becoming humanly more and more impossible for God to fulfill his promise, God purposely waited until it was physically impossible. You guys, seriously, think about this. From a very human perspective, from your experience, how could Abraham still have faith? after the promise became impossible to fulfill? How can you have faith when what is promised seems absolutely impossible? It's only possible because he knew that the God who made the promise could still keep it. It was, it was it, his faith allowed him to see not the limitations of his human condition, but the infinite power of the God who made the promise. After all, this, this is the God who calls life from the dead. This is the God who speaks a word and things exist where nothing existed before. He, he's the author of the Big Bang. He's the, he's the beginner of the process. He's, he's the one who says, it shall be, and it exists. This, this God is not limited by our human frailties and failures. He is not limited by what is physically impossible. Abraham looked at this God and he trusted God's power. You know why he trusted God's power? Because he had a promise. He had a promise. He could trust God's hand because he trusted God's heart. God had revealed his heart. God said, look, man, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You will be blessed, and through you, all the world will be blessed. I will do this for you. And because he had rested in the promise, he was able to rest in the power. And even though it became physically impossible, he grew strong in faith. God has the power to deliver on his promises. Because God never lies. As impossible as the promises may seem. So Abraham rested in in, in God's uh, promise. And Abraham rested in, in, in God's power. And God and, and, and Abraham rested in God's plan. You guys digging this alliteration? You like this? I'm going old school here. Old school preacher alliterating. I hope you appreciate it. I had to think about that. I had to work on that. Make it memorable, right? All right, so verse 13. Take a look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. All right, so something kind of interesting happening in verse 13, right? What was, what was Abraham promised in verse 13? Did you notice that? He was promised the world. All right, when you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you take a look at the promise, um, you're looking at a, a specific piece of real estate along the side of the Mediterranean Sea. Right? God's very clear. I'm going to give you this piece of real estate along the side of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the promised land. This is what I'm giving to your kids, right? And yet, Paul looks at it and says, no, Abraham wasn't just promised a little piece of, of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. That, that was the promised land, but there is a true and better promised land. There is a bigger promise. God promised Abraham the world. God promised Abraham the world. Israel was promised a land. That's absolutely true. But that promise was only the foretaste. It was the foreshadowing of the greater promise. In this promise, God was promising God's people, Abraham's descendants, both Jewish and non-Jewish, all of those who are children of Abraham because they are children of faith, he is promising them an inheritance. He is promising them a land. He is promising them a redeemed and restored world. You guys, there are at all times in your life two stories taking place. There's the micro and the macro. On the micro level, uh, which is what we get consumed with, it's what we see and what we focus on. On the micro level, it, it, it's about your ambitions, your joys and your sorrows, your, your triumphs and, and, and your losses. Right On the micro level, your story is about what's happening right now and what's going to happen in the next week. What happened in my childhood and, and how is that playing out in my adulthood? It's right in the micro level. It is it's all about your experience in, in life and um, and understandably, we tend to get obsessed with the micro, right? Because that, that's what we feel. That's what we experience on a day-to-day basis, whether it's good or bad, whether it's joyful or sorrowful, whether it is triumphant or, or it is tragic. But the micro is not all there is. Simultaneously to God working in your life in in a daily moment-to-moment basis, God is also working in the macro. He is working not just in your story, but the big story, the story of the entire world. 
God is intent to redeem and restore, and he will work out that redemption and restoration in your life, simultaneously working not just in your life, but through that, through all the lives of those that are being redeemed and restored, and, 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 and through that to the bigger picture of the redemption and restoration of all things. God's intent is not simply to forgive you and take you to heaven. God's intent is to forgive you to redeem you and restore you and bring you into a greater story of redemption and restoration that encompasses the entire earth in which we will come together with all the people of God. All of those from all ages who have been, who have been forgiven because of the work of Christ, who have become children of Abraham because they have become children of faith in which we will be brought into this new humanity that will live in this new kingdom to the glory of our King. While we tend to obsess on the micro, God never lose sight of the macro. Abraham wanted a son. He wanted a son. Abraham wanted a land. When he was called out of Ur and told to simply go this way, he wanted a land for himself and for his children. He wanted home. But there were in those promises a temporal fulfillment, and an eternal fulfillment. You want joy. You want success. You you want security. But I'm telling you, you don't just want joy and success and security tomorrow or today or next week. You want the greater and more lasting security and joy and meaning and purpose that comes from being part of a greater creation and a greater recreation. Abraham understood that God had a plan and that that plan wasn't just about his story today or tomorrow. He had a long-range vision that allowed him to see that God was in the process of redeeming and restoring all things and that his daily sufferings and his daily joys, as important as they were to him, had to be put into the context of the greater story and the greater purpose that God would get his glory. And then when God got his glory, we would get our joy. So maybe he couldn't understand the details of his daily life. But he could trust the God who was above them. Why did he have to wait? God never told him. Doesn't that drive you nuts? God never explains himself. You ever notice that? God does what God does, and we come and we demand, why are you doing this? And the only response we ever get back is, do you trust me? He had a vision of God's greater plan, and in the vision of God's greater plan, he understood that even his sufferings would be redeemed to a greater glory. That even the profound losses that he experienced that he couldn't explain or couldn't put in context, everyone wants to be like, well, maybe this happened because God just needed blah, blah, blah. Man, we don't know. We don't know anything. What we do know is that God knows. And faith drives us to rest in God's plan, even when we don't understand how it's working out in the micro of our plan. He didn't know, but he trusted the God who did. So faith, faith rests in God's promise, God, it rests in God's power, it rests in God's plan. And there's one last one, and before I give it to you, 
I want to throw a wrench into this sermon. Because this is all true. It's all right here in the text. I'm just telling you what's right here on the page. But how do we reconcile this with Abraham's actual life? If you're familiar with Abraham's life, you know that I can't just preach this sermon without at least admitting there's some challenge here. God first gave his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I will give you a son by Sarah. I will bless you. Right there in Genesis chapter 12, before we even get out of the chapter, a famine comes to the land, and Abraham is driven out of, uh, into Egypt to survive, and, and, and he becomes afraid because in Egypt he recognizes his wife Sarah is just so freaking pretty that his life will be put in danger. So he lies, and he says that Sarah's his sister. Even to the point when Pharaoh sees her, and comes to him and says, I am infatuated by the beauty of this woman. Tell, him, tell me what she is to you. And he's like, she's my sister. And he says, okay, I'm going to take her as my wife. And Abraham says, well, I didn't see that coming. But okay. Abraham was afraid. Abraham was, as many of us would say, a freaking coward. He betrayed the woman who loved him. He betrayed his sacred trust to protect her, to stand up for her, to lead and suffer in her place. (laughs) Jump ahead. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham rested in God's power. But when God took too long, Abraham took God to task. And in Genesis chapter 15, he challenges God. How am I supposed to know you're going to keep your word? You haven't done it yet. How am I supposed to know? Give me a sign, as if God's word wasn't enough. As if God's promise wasn't enough, he demanded a sign, and God in his humility gave it to him. We get this beautiful picture of God actually entering into a covenant with Abraham, has Abraham lay out the the sacrificial animals, passes through the middle, has Abraham go to sleep, so it's very clear that the only one committed in this promise is God himself. God gives him a sign graciously. Yeah, God, Abraham trusted his promise, but he was a coward. He trusted his power, but he doubted. God rested, or Abraham rested in God's plan. But when God took too long, Abraham decided he was going to help God with his plan. So he took Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, as his mistress. Sarah's like, maybe this is how God's going to fulfill the plan. Take her. And in a violation of trust, not only with Sarah, not only with Hagar, but with God. Abraham fathers a son named Ishmael with Hagar. And Sarah gets incensed with jealousy and sends her out into the desert to die. And God protects her and God protects that child. And that child becomes the father of the Arabic nations. God blessed. But Abraham, hmm. 
me ask you this, you guys. How in the world is Abraham such a great example of faith when he struggles so much? How is Abraham such a great example of faith when, when, yeah, he trusted the plan of God, but he undercut the plan of God, when he trusted the power of God, but he didn't trust the power of God, when he trusted the, the promise of God, but he doubted the promise of God? With doubt and cowardice and temptation... He's the example of faith because above all, true faith rests in grace. Y'all were expecting a P, weren't you? (laughs) Nah, I got tired. Verse 16. That is why it, that is your deliverance, your dependence, your salvation, it... The fulfillment of the promise, what? Depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, Jewish and non-Jewish, not only to the adherents of the law, those who were born under the law, the Jews, but also to the ones who share in the faith of Abraham, us, Gentiles, people who are coming to Father Abraham as the children of faith. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. He's saying something incredibly profound here. We do not rest our hope on our faith. We rest our hope on God's grace. See, Paul's point here is this. If our salvation depended on us having a faith that was good enough, if our salvation depended on us having a faith that was strong enough, if our, if our salvation was dependent on us being good enough or performing enough or improving enough or moving forward in faith enough or having enough confidence or, or being persuaded enough, it, if it rested in any way on our ability to do this thing, we'd all be lost. It can't depend on our obedience. It cannot depend on our faithfulness. It depends on our faith because it rests on His grace. See, faith isn't a work we do or a commitment we stir up or a conviction that we force ourselves into having or a feeling that we experience or foster. It is a response of trust because it rests in grace. Faith isn't a work we do. It is a response we have. Faith. Faith, very simply, is what we call resting in grace. And all God asks you to do is receive it. Not be worthy of it, not work hard enough for it, not be fully persuaded enough to receive grace. If you receive grace, you have faith. That's Faith is very simply resting in grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. Grace is God giving us what we cannot earn. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Grace is charity. And we are charity cases. And we don't like that. We don't like to need charity, and we don't like to think of ourselves as charity cases. We hate it. But you know what, you guys? Charity Charity is an old English word that very simply means love. That's why in the King James Version it says these three things remain, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 
We are charity cases because we are desperately in need of God to love us in spite of our failures. We are hopeless outside of God's commitment to love us. We are a mess. And even in our faith, we're a mess, you guys. Even in our faith, there is doubt. Even in our commitment, there is cowardice. Even in, 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 our, in our best days, there is pride and brokenness. You guys, that's why we often come to God for help and not for grace. Abraham did that. Abraham showed up and was asking God for help. Hey, we just need a little bit of help here. Sarah and I, man, we got this thing. Can't you just help? Like now? Can't you just, can't you just help? We're doing 90% of the work here, God. Can't you just step in and do the final 10%? We're doing our part. Can't you do yours? Man, it is so much easier to ask God for help than it is to ask for grace because we don't like charity. We don't like to feel helpless. We don't like to feel completely dependent. We don't want to feel like we have nothing to offer, nothing to give. But God wouldn't give him help. God instead spent 25 years driving him to grace. God spent 25 years purifying his faith, driving him into dependency, driving him beyond his own limitations, his own confidence in himself, his own hope and his own strength, his own plan to save his own life. God spent 25 years driving him to purify his faith, driving him to grace. You guys, this is what's so cool. God took responsibility not just to extend grace, but to grow his faith. Even his faith was a gift of grace. You guys, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of God's grace. It is his promise, his power, his plan that saves. Not what you do to take hold of it. To grow strong in faith, then, isn't to grow strong in your confidence in yourself, your confidence in your Christian life, your confidence in your maturity, your confidence in your self-control. To grow strong in faith is to grow strong in your confidence in grace, to become ever more increasingly aware of how desperately you need grace and ever more comfortable resting in that grace instead of performing, trying to earn the blessing. And even when you mess up, and even when you stumble, and even when you betray your own convictions, God hasn't lost sight of you even though you've lost sight of Him. The beauty of grace is that it takes hold of us and does for us what we cannot do and takes us where we cannot go. God simply asks you to receive it. To receive the grace. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't have to be confident in yourself or your ability to do this thing. You don't you need to take him at his word. You need to take grace as it is given. Because his power will still work for you. He will still keep his promise to you. 
Even when you are faithless, he is still faithful. That's our only hope. Because our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith is in his grace. It, it comes through grace. That's through faith. But it is by grace. We receive what he offers. We embrace his strength instead of offering our own. So two, two ways we can embrace and walk in fake faith as a result. One is to be filled with self-confidence and pride. To look at our religious behavior and religious pattern and believe that God deserves to bless us because we have become worthy of it. And the second is to be so filled with condemnation at our shortcoming and failings that we lose sight of the grace of God and we abandon our hope in the promise of God. Faith leads us to despair in our pride and take hope in our despair because it rests in grace, not in us. All right, you guys, we have a unique opportunity today. Um, We are celebrating baptisms after the next service. I would love to celebrate some right now. I would be totally cool just going and changing and getting in the tank and and baptizing some folks. Let me just explain what baptism is. Baptism isn't for perfect people. Uh, Baptism is for uh, not perfect faith. Um, Baptism is about a perfect God and a perfect promise. Baptism is for those who are basically saying, I'm taking hold of the promise of God because the promise of God has taken hold of me. I rest in grace, not in my performance for God, but in God's performance for me. God has taken hold of me, and I want to declare it. I want to celebrate it publicly, right? We dunk people in baptism, um, first of all, because it's biblical. The word baptizo, baptize, literally means to immerse because it is a physical symbol of entering into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It means you have been united in his death, because he died for you, and you've been united with him in his resurrection because he was raised for you. you. You are cleansed from who you are and all of your failures, all of your guilt and all of your shame, and you are made new in who he is and, and, and in the new creation of what he's making. So here's the thing. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, I want to invite you to be baptized today. But see, what if my faith is weak? What if I'm afraid? What if I don't have a change of clothes? God's grace is strong, and he calls you simply to trust, and we got clothes for you. We got you covered, right? All the way down to the the unmentionables, right? We got you covered. Um, We got a towel for you. You're going to be good. You'll get a t-shirt. How cool is that? Um, but here's, here's what we need you to do. If, if you're a believer in Christ and you haven't been baptized, but, but the Spirit is prompting you, please don't resist that prompting. Right? Faith is simply responding in trust to the initiation of God. So take a step of faith. Right? It's stepping out in obedience, not because you know how it's going to end or not because you like the way, it, but because God's prompting you to do it. It's, I trust God's grace more than I trust my own plan. So if you're a believer in Christ and you haven't been baptized, I need you to go to Connection Point, like, right away. During our, our time of response, during our time of communion, go to Connection Point. One of our leaders will meet with you, and they will talk with you and help you decide if, if this is the right decision and the right day, and if, 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 if we're all good to go. Um, I'll make an announcement at the end of the service. Everybody will stay, um, not so you'll feel awkward, but so that they can celebrate the grace of God with you and in you, okay? And so um, that's the plan. I will let you guys know after the, after the worship set if we have any baptisms. Uh, if we don't, you guys are free to return after the 1045. Uh, I love baptisms. 
I mean, it is just a huge celebration. So if you want to come back at that point, we'd be glad to have you. But I will let you know. Go to Connection Point. We'll help you decide if it's the right decision. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll go into a time of response. Father, I do thank you that (laughs) the only thing you require of us is faith, and you're the very one who gives us the faith that you require. That at the end of the day, it's all grace. It is all unmerited, undeserved blessing and favor. It rests on your promise, not our ability to take hold of it. It rests on your character, not on our ability to improve ourselves. It rests on your intent to redeem and restore individuals and and to, 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 to knit them together into a redeemed and restored humanity. It rests on your heart to bless. Father, I pray for my friends that are struggling in their faith, that feel weak and vulnerable, that are stumbling spirit. Help them to stumble forward into greater trust, just as you did with Abraham. Help them to stumble into their weakness that they might discover your strength. Help them to stumble into their inability that they might rest in your power, that they might be brought to the end of themselves, that they might begin to discover the beginning of you that they might despair of their own glory, that they might once and for all be freed into the delight of your glory. I pray for my friends that are self-content in their faith, that are confident in their religion, that really do believe they just need help and not grace. Lord, will you afflict the comfortable even as you comfort the afflicted? Will you bring your conviction to bear on those hearts that are self-satisfied and prideful? in their religious performance, in their accomplishments in their life that allow them to puff themselves up and look down on others? Would you bring the fresh wind of humility into their life as disturbing and unsettling as it may be that they may see their need for grace and be freed into a fresh and profound experience of your love? Lord, may we all be freed into the current of that grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.